0: Hi, and welcome to No Idea, the podcast aimed at providing listeners with a foundational understanding of IDEA. I'm one of three hosts, Hunter Kunorth. I have nearly a decade of special education experience, first as a teacher and then as a director.
1: I am Kelly Bilbrey, who has not only been a teacher, but also worked for the Nebraska Department of Education, a previous superintendent in South Dakota, and currently oversees the special education department for the largest virtual
2: school in Wyoming. Hi, I'm Karen Hasse. Uh, Not only am I a previous teacher, but I'm currently a special ed lawyer who's been practicing uh, law since 1996. I represent clients in Nebraska, Wyoming, and South Dakota, and I speak at numerous educational conferences, including uh, LRP, both as keynote and as a breakout presenter. Between the three of us, we bring in over 50 years of educational experience.
0: Today, we're going to continue our conversation on evaluations. Where we last left off was completing the 60-day evaluation, what that looks like on Next Steps. Some topics in the previous episode include child find, uh, when to evaluate, what to look for, uh, and as well as some kind of outlining as how to discuss child find with some of your staff at times if you're in an administrative role. Um, So yeah, so we're going to pick up. So basically, you've conducted the evaluation. Now what? You'll meet together as a team. You'll make a determination as to does the child's, uh, does the suspected disability impact the academics? I think that's one of the bigger pieces to really pick up on and make sure we run with. Because now you might hear, well, he doesn't listen at home, or he doesn't do this, or he doesn't do that. And you may not see that in school hours or school time. And that's really important to notice. Now, if you're not seeing that and the evaluation hasn't picked up on that, it's really important to know that's where an IEE can come into play. And that is where the, the parents say, hey, I don't agree with the evaluation, and here's why. Do they have to say why, Karen?
2: Um, if a parent is asking for an independent education evaluation, they do have to articulate what test they want to be evaluated uh, and then uh, articulate what they don't like about the school district's evaluation. Um, in general, the courts don't make them be very specific about what they think was wrong. They don't have to say, you know, I think that the testing conditions, for example, were not accordance to the norm reference test. They just have to say, I disagree with that subsection of the test because I think it's wrong. And then the district has to decide what they're going to do in response to that.
0: Can they disagree and say, I disagree with the entire evaluation. I want a whole new evaluation. I wanted autism. You looked at OHI or ADHD or something along those lines.
2: Well, you just asked two different questions, right? (laughs) So if they say, uh, if the parent says autism is something that you should have suspected and I now want an autism evaluation, I'm going to do that myself. Um, The question becomes whether or not the district had reason to suspect that the student might be a student on the spectrum. If there was no reason for the district to suspect that, and the parents now specifically ask for an autism evaluation, most of the time the courts hold that the school district has a chance to do the first evaluation for autism itself. However, if the parent has a a complaint that the student is uh, non-responsive, doesn't have any friends, and the school district has also documented, for example, the kid doesn't have very good social skills and seems to be obsessed with particular topics, That's probably one where the district should have assessed for autism, and then the parents' request for an IEE can be something that they would be able to legally enforce. My best advice for independent education evaluation requests is call your lawyer right away. Um, I think IEEs get fumbled by districts more often than not, both in terms of just saying no when you can't just say no, um, and uh, in terms of just saying yes when there might be arguments for the district to say no and issue prior written notice.
0: Excellent. And so, when you have that evaluation termination, and I'm going to go down the rabbit hole of IEE, uh, we get midway through the termination because we are operating in timelines. Parents go, stop it! I don't agree. I don't want this. They walk up and they walk out. As an administrator, or the the administrator in that meeting, it's my understanding, correct me at any point, Karen or Kelly, that they're going to want to document. Hey, we got to we got to kind of figure this out. And they maybe want to take a timeout. They may want to get that parent back involved. Say, hey, let's reconvene, or you know, if you keep going heaven forbid, we're going to, have to keep going without you. Because the the, the big piece that I want to make sure it's stressed and understood is, and, and Wyoming is currently going through this, the understanding of the parent's role. Um, within the CFR or the Code of Federal Regulations, uh, 34 IDEA, it's basically the same thing. You'll hear us say that over and over again. Um, is it 330, Karen, I believe? I think it's somewhere in that area where it discusses and it defines the role of a parent. And that's really important, like I said, especially in Wyoming, because we're starting mm-hmm. to see the meld of DFS. And we're starting – last year, Kelly, you're well aware. Well, Karen's well aware. of it. I, I butted heads with DFS openly because they kept saying, I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I want that. And I said, hey, guys, you're not the parent. Like, I I, I got to have some give and take here. Let's have a meeting. Let's have a conversation and it was a fascinating uh, uh, piece. So, as I jump back to the IE piece, they get up, they walk away. What are the next steps?
2: So, well, Kelly, I guess you've been in there more often in real life than I have been. I only get it when things get to a legal perspective.
1: Um, yes, we have definitely had <laughs> times when we have sent a psychologist out to evaluate a student and they come for half of it and they leave. We always try to redo it. Then we'll call the parent. We will convene a meeting. You know, what can we do? Are there portions of this that we could do virtually? We do everything in our power to get that evaluation done. Everything. Um, Is there a different place that we can meet? Would you like to meet at the library instead of at the college. I mean, we do everything that we can. Um, there have been cases when they won't show back up, especially in, you know, the virtual environment. Mm-hmm. So then I always PWN that, my providers PWN that, that we just, we can't get the parent. We it's Some of them have almost like fallen off the face of the earth. So we always make sure that we have really good notes. We PWN it. We try I try to call the parents. The teachers try to call the parents and we do everything in our power and keep excellent documentation.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the biggest piece is understanding as a as the administrator for the IEP team or the special education department, whether you're a sped director or principal, or whatever. I mean, you could even be the, the IEP team lead, whatever is designated to you in that role. Keeping those notes and keeping a, a pretty well worded PWN, I learned that from Kelly and I learned that from Karen. Where I almost get to the point where I'm putting it line by line of what we're talking about, what we're doing, and what are next steps. For me, I still apply the stranger test where if anybody picks that PWN, especially in the virtual environment, because as Kelly said, those kids do bounce around a lot. And I mean, you and I, Kelly, what, our first year, we dealt with a number of uh, fascinating issues where we had to call Karen. I mean, those are times where if we would have a pretty well documented PWN from the previous district, we say, oh. I know what we're missing. I know what we need to do. Or, hey, I see a trend here. Um, all right. So we Well, we let me, uh, kind
2: of, I want to hop in and just sort of like orient. So if somebody is a, a, a fresh mind to the world of special ed, what we're talking about is if the family refuses to participate in finishing up the um, evaluation, the school district would issue what's called prior written notice, which we'll talk about in detail in another podcast. But at this point, you should understand that it is a way for the school district to inform the parents- that the decision that they're making by not letting their kid finish the testing is going to have implications in terms of the student's special ed eligibility. And if the parent walks out or pulls the kid and will not participate in the evaluation, I'm not worried at that point about an independent education evaluation or even about special ed services for that student um, because the parent will have effectively blocked us from being able to find the student as a student with a disability.
0: And that's actually a great point to bring up, especially because, like Kelly said, I mean, we we, we were on the eastern part of Wyoming. We dealt with smaller populations, especially in the brick setting, where that wasn't as normal. But yeah, I mean, you guys have probably seen it time and time again, where they may not have completed the entire evaluation, or and there's been times when I've met and during the eligibility meeting, he, the child has been eligible, parent says no, and that kind of stops us. And that's yeah. totally it's within their rights. That's procedural safeguards. Those are things that directors and everybody need to be well aware of, especially general education teachers. Because some of them really hang their hat on, it. Hey, that kid's getting an IEP. I'm, what's this going to fix our problems? It's going to take care of everything. And the moment the parent's parent says no for the guardian, it almost stalls everybody. And so for, in those situations, what have you all done? I mean, Kelly, especially with you, your, your background.
1: Well, when the parent says no, then, I mean, I have had, last year I had a student who definitely needed special ed very, very, very badly. And um, failing all of the classes, the parents like, nope. So in my world, what did I do? Because we then could not determine that that was an appropriate environment for the student. So then in my case, I referred the student back to their home district where they could get um, the help that they needed. Um, But, you know, that's not always the case. I've had parents get to, especially with speech IEPs get to the IEP. My kid doesn't need that. My kid doesn't need speech. Well, so then we try to explain to them, you know, the speech is affecting the way they read, the way, I mean, we do everything in our power. Maybe you would just like to meet with our psychologist and let's just see, you know, I mean, we do everything in our power to try to help them. It Sometimes it's just out of our control. And I think Kelly I have a, really sorry, big feelings
2: about i well, I, I say I have really big feelings about this topic, and here's why um the federal government has given parents the right to stop schools from helping students who we suspect have disabilities, and nothing makes an educator more crazy than the idea that i can I cannot get a kid the help that he or she deserves and needs. and so what I see happening over and over again in the circumstances that Kelly's talking about is the school like tries to convince the parents, they they, do, they beg, they plead. And then when the parents still don't don't agree, we sort of provide the services on the down low. Um, we, we sort of, we, you know, the teacher gives the, the kid extra preferential seating and the teacher lets the kid get away with shouting out during class because we all know he really has some kind of behavior disorder. And we end up sort of limping through until the student either has received specially designed instruction without parental consent or until the school district is at the end of its rope and, and now wants to throw up its hands about this kiddo. And when a parent t- tells us that they will not consent to the provision of services for a student with, uh, that we suspect has a disability, then I say we give that kid gen ed good and heart. We give them nothing that they are not entitled to as a general education student. We don't accommodate behaviors in ways that wouldn't be included in our multi-tiered systems of supports. And we make sure that the parents feel the consequences of that. Educators hate that because we don't want to let kids fail. But um, if a student needs an IEP and the parents are refusing, the best way to get that kid the help he needs is to have the failure occur and the parents then say, "Okay, I guess you're right. He does need those services. But I don't want to give special ed on the down low. And I think I really like the multi-tiered systems of supports model. I believe in it. But I also think it has allowed us to play games sometimes with parents who've revoked by calling what is really specially designed instruction a tier two service. I agree, Karen.
0: (laughs) That's an amazing point to bring up too. And those are things, one thing to really understand in the procedural safeguards in the grand scheme of things, when a child has initial eligibility, when the parent says no, it stops everything. It doesn't, the train, the train of special education stops. You you don't get to go to the next station. You don't, so, and I would agree with Karen and, and, and Kelly. I mean, you and I have seen it. Parents said, no, what do we do? we just, we got to go back to the drawing board. All right, guys, let's make sure whatever you're doing with that kid, you're doing for anyone else. So if that kid is flipping you off before we had all these interventions, we had all those things planned, we're not doing that anymore. Why? Because we're not doing that for little Billy right next to him. And I mean, those are things where the parents can slowly say, you're calling me more, why? Well, we had these interventions, we were doing these things, now we're not. anymore. And so, or we plan on doing that, we talked about the meeting, but you rejected that and revoked it, that we're not going to, You know, we're no longer moving forward with that. I do want to go back to one thing Kelly said. Um, With Kelly's experience in the virtual environment, her and I worked really closely with Karen as well last year and the year before to kind of develop how to approach virtual students in the virtual environment and special Mm -hmm. education. So she talked about referring them back to their home district. That's something we'll touch upon later on. That's probably an episode all on its own because that's a very fascinating way of having to really assist kids that may not be, you know, cut out for, and I don't want to say cut out, but may not, you know, the virtual education is not best for, them. same thing with home, you know, homebound instruction, it's that continuum, but we may get that when we get the LRE, like I said, we may have a separate episode just on that alone, because it's a whole different topic, and virtual education is is starting, has been, since COVID, and if not before then, just kind of bubbling up. So anyways, we, we get to the determination, we don't need the IEE or independent educational evaluation, and we have the disability categories correct me if I'm wrong, the federal floor is 13 categories, um, ranging from uh, specific learning disability all the way to orthopedic impairment. And throughout that, the evaluation has been tailored to really pick up and see which one of those the student's going to fit in. The one thing, and I will be very honest, OHI is going to be a big one, obviously. SLD is there too. I'm I'm always hesitant to look at ED unless you have a, a chunk of data. It's one of those disabilities that it has some heft. To it. It's an emotional disability. I mean, that, that's, that's there's some heft behind that. I and mean, there's there's some uh, implication, you know, there's some stuff down the road that can affect that child if not, you know, draw appropriately. Karen, is there, if I remember correctly, is there an OSEP letter? Or is there some guidance out there that really specifies, like, it doesn't, IDEA does not say you need six months of data. You need nine months of data. It just says you need some, you need information here. So I think that's where the MTSS process comes in. But is there any guidance on what a rough timeline looks like?
2: And Kelly, like I'll, I'll let you jump in in a second because you're going to have the more practical answer. I Two things I want to say, though. Number one, not all states are categorical states. Um, for example, Iowa is a non-categorical state. So when Hunter talking about the different categories of disability under the IDEA, In Iowa, you're just looking at a student's performance and and, uh, pattern of strengths and weaknesses. Um, And then the other thing I will say is that for emotional disability, whether it's ED in your state or BD or EBD or whatever initials your state has decided to use, um, the federal criteria require that the student um, have certain deficiencies and inability to form relationships with adults and inability to form relationships with peers. The magic words are to a marked degree for a long period of time. And as I look at the case law, and I'll be fascinated to hear, Kelly, your practical experience, as I look at the case law, that for a long period of time generally seems to be more than six months. Um, There's a lot of cases involving mental health right now with high school students, and we're having cases where students start exhibiting symptoms of some kind of emotional disturbance in September, and it creeps along and the school district doesn't get around to evaluating the kid until March or April. And in the vast majority of those cases, um, a few months like that is considered an appropriate delay because it's not for a long period of time. Uh, If you get beyond a school year, now I start to get worried as legal counsel about whether or not we've waited too long. Um, So I'm curious, Kelly, what you do as a practical matter. What we usually
1: do, and we do have kids who um, have come in. Actually, we have one right now that we are um, looking at ED as the category. We always involve our counselor and we, co- we collect data for at least six to nine weeks, actually, in the virtual school is what we do. Um, we do have what is called, we have the mental health people come in. Anna has been helping us a lot from the BRICS. I mean, we do- as a school psychologist.
0: No, LPC.
1: Oh, yeah, the right. mental health yep. LPC, yes. So
0: licensed yes. professional counselor, just for those who aren't aware of the evidence. Yes.
1: <laughs> um, and, you know, tons of data. They go through the MTSS process. They meet with Katie. We always have them meet with Katie, our counselor, first. But I feel in the virtual environment, six months is too long mm-hmm. because we can't meet physically with these kids. We can't see them. We see a snippet of their home life. We hear a snippet of their home life. So my general rule to my uh, teachers and providers is nine weeks, six to nine weeks. After nine weeks, we reconvene the team and we make a decision. Okay, are we seeing red flags that indicate a possible ED road or are we seeing maybe you know, OHI, something like that. Do they have ADHD, something like that. But in my world, six
2: months is too long. And I love, I want to point out, this is the difference between a practitioner who's talking about what's best for kids and a lawyer who's talking about what's the most you can get away with, right? <laughs> my my job is to stretch and to be able to defend the most outside range of school district decisions while Kelly's talking about what's best for practitioners. And I, 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 I respect that and think you're probably right. Six months feels like a long time.
0: And I yeah. think too, in the grand scheme of things, when you look at the environments, when I was in the bricks and we were doing uh, MTSS and we we're looking at the behavior, writing BIPs, we're doing all these things. We're looking at those three, six, nine, or we're looking at that extended time to make a determination. We really I, I tried to hang on to that nine months just because I wanted to identify patterns and I wanted to see, is it seasonal, is it this, is it that? You know, mm. from there it even assists with the you know, with the school psych, with the counselor, because maybe we identify trends. Hey, you know, there might be something that goes on right around Thanksgiving. There might be trauma, there might be this, there might be the other things. And, and that can help us. And I mean the also the other pieces. We all know as soon as you introduce that intervention, especially behaviorally, the behavior either increases, decreases, or it does something funky. And you got to give it some time to make a determination. Once again, I see that kid every day. I, I, You know, we can work on tickets. I can build that relationship. Where Kelly, she's limited in the virtual environment. It's very limiting in the sense of this face-to-face interaction is amazing. However, there's there's that barrier. There's that the weather goes out, bad snowstorm, you, know, you know, internet's not paid for, stuff like that where it does, you know. The other piece of that, and I want to make sure everyone's well aware of, I like telehealth. I I, I think it's phenomenal, especially in a state like Wyoming. However, I, I'm always concerned when we have those services that the parent might be sitting over somewhere else, listening mm-hmm. in and popping in, or and that may mm-hmm. mess up or, or, or kind of misconstrue some of that. And understand, no counselor, no therapist, no school psych, no teacher. They don't. They want to work through the issues. They want to provide those supports. They they understand there's trauma there. So on the parent side, like we we get it. Like there's things that happen. Let's let's work together. Let's address them. Let's give the kids the school uh, skills and let's move forward.
1: So. And that's interesting that you say that, Hunter, about the parents sitting there. That's part of the reason in my world that we do fast track it sometimes because we know the parent mm-hmm. is sitting right there telling the kid what to do. The kid tells Katie something different. The kid. So, you know, we're like, oh, we have got to do something.
0: Then. And- And for parents, I would never hesitate to reach out and say, hey, my kid's on an IEP. We have these services, but I might need some support. And there's stuff built into that IEP that's right there that can provide it. That might be family counseling. That might be supports for that school psych or contracted individual to come into the house and say, let's do this, let's try this, let's do that. Or even say, let's set up meetings with, I mean, we contracted with the uh, psych out of uh, Laramie and we used him and he would come in and meet with families. Sometimes the families would meet, sometimes they wouldn't. And that's okay, but we always offered that. It was one of those things like, we talk, we'll get into the and we'll talk about legally defensible. If you're doing something that's legally defensible, nine times out of 10, it's what's best for the kid. I mean, that's that's it. As long as you're doing what's best for the kid, it's, it's usually pretty easily, in my mind, legally defensible. So we have I these- I think
2: that um, our focus on, since we jumped immediately to mental health and emotional yep. and behavior disorders, that's that's what every educator is seeing in their student mm-hmm. population right now. The mental health crisis among adolescents and pre-adolescents is just exploding and students with those kind of needs are at an all-time nice. high. I think we shouldn't be—we'd be remiss though if we weren't also talking about students with um, learning disabilities, mm-hmm. um, because there's been some discussion, uh, especially in midwestern states, about uh, how we identify a student with a specific learning disability. And it used to be that if a student was two standard deviations difference between his or her intellectual ability and his or her performance, then we decided that that, that that gap was a reason to identify the student as having a specific learning disability. But that modality of testing is no longer lawful, and there's still a lot of school sites that are struggling to figure out what the new model is. So I think you guys, again, as as the educators, should talk a little bit about the identification process for specific learning disability now that we're not using standard deviation uh, points.
0: Kelly, you want to take the lead and I'll follow up?
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> um, when we do, when our psychologist does do the testing, you know, in Wyoming, we have to hit the, what is it, Hunter? Two or three prongs. I can't remember. I think it's two, I want to say. Decent. I can fill the form up, but... I can't remember. But, you know, and I know then what we get a lot of is the whole child thing as well. Right. I mean, we get a lot of that. Okay. Well, you know, they they really don't need help in writing, but they're needing some help in reading, which can we still serve them in writing? I mean, that seems to be one of the main issues that I deal with when we have a student that meets both of those prongs, but Okay, now we could, they could also use help here, here, and here. And that's where I think, and I know a lot of educators like myself, um, they struggle with that. Okay, do we serve the whole child or do we not? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a big issue. And I know I when th- I was in South Dakota, that was a big thing that we were talking about.
0: And I think so, Karen, sorry, go ahead.
1: Go ahead, Hunter.
0: I think Karen kind of set me straight last year when we talked about this because I even asked her, I said, when we i I'll be honest, if I were to revamp IDA tomorrow and I'd say, hey guys, look for an individual with a disability. We we can identify through that through testing, et cetera, you know, observations, MTSS, all that. Get rid of the thirteen categories. Those are they're yeah. a great they're a great foundation. They're a great place to start, but it really muddies the water like Kelly is saying, because well, okay, we're saying autism, but does that mean this? Does that include this? Does that include that? Autism is kind of a bad one because it can include a lot more than most, but you are right, Kelly. It is getting it does muddy the waters. But Karen had talked to me about this last year and said, "No, whole child approach. That's the way IDEA was was really written." And when you have those categories and you have those, and I'll be honest, I've had the state come down to me when I you know back in bricks, they said, "Why are you giving this kid this when it's
1: actually exactly. this disability
0: wise?" And I'll always struggle with 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 any state department telling me that about those kids because I'm the one sitting in the meetings. I'm the one going to the classroom seeing those because I'm the one going, OK, now for me, what I can do for my department is make it more so that our documentation or IEPs are more stranger proof. So anybody I give that IEP to can pass that stranger test. However, the, the end of the goal for me is what's best for that kid. So going back to the reading, going back to SLD, if we look at the MTSS process and this kid has started in, the, in tier one. And he was getting um, some support, some you know, some various tier one supports. Then he was getting some tier two supports, which may include what we call title or some reading interventions, or writing, or math, or anything along those ways. And then it gets more individualized. And then we do our testing, and they're still not making progress. And I can chart that, and I can go, "Oh, we're still having deficits." That's where we're gonna go. Hey, this kid needs it. Let's figure this out, and let's make sure this kid gets those services. And that's what I'll once again I'll die on the fact of if the kid needs it, let's give it to him. And that is difficult at times because. Wyoming, as we we continually say, is 100% reimbursed. If we have to meet a certain standard of MOE. I can go above. And MOE is maintenance of effort. We'll have a separate podcast or, on that one really specifically just because, and that'll be more for the administrators. Um, and I'm sure parents would want to listen to it, anyone else, just because it does give some background inside baseball there. But but I can work with that MOE more in the state of Wyoming. And I don't know many states that are 100% reimbursed here. And I, I would have to turn to you guys or even Kelly. Are there many?
2: I don't know of any other than Wyoming. No. Um, But but Hunter, that brings up a point that I want to make for both educators and for parents listening. So often when we're talking about the services that a child might need and educators are saying, no, I don't think he needs this. What parents hear is we don't want to pay for that. Mm -hmm. And school districts are not permitted under federal law to refuse services to a student based on the cost. The question really is whether or not the student needs that service in order to receive a free and appropriate public education. And I think that's what Kelly's struggling with when she talks about that. Does does this is this need connected to the student's disability in terms of needing specially designed instruction as opposed to we don't want to pay for it because we're cheapskates and want kids to fail? That's certainly not the approach that we're allowed. And I've never really heard anybody um, have that perspective, even behind closed doors when they're talking to their lawyer. It's almost never really about cost, but parents almost always hear cost when we talk about we don't think the child needs that.
0: And I think, too, right now I'm I'm working for a uh, residential treatment uh, facility, and I see that more because I handle the IEPs, I work with the districts, I work with our providers. And one thing we offer is we have um, equine therapy and we we even have music therapy. And those are some of the things where the where the districts are like. Now
2: you know you know you are in Wyoming when equine therapy is less outrageous than music therapy. Yes, you know if you are yes. in New York, equine therapy or Connecticut or whatever, equine therapy is crazy, crazy talk. But anyway, go yes. ahead. No,
0: yeah, one hundred percent. It's well, the districts go. What is this beneficial for? And so for me, I go to those individual providers and I go and I but before I go to the providers, I'll go to you know their teachers their therapist, or therapists, all those individuals that work with that kid currently, and I'll say, why would we do this for this child? give me a justification. And then if I start to see a trend, I go, hey, you know, three out of the five or whatever, I'll send that on to the district. The way I've always viewed my position currently is Kelly represents the district. And when Kelly contracts with me, I have to go to her and go, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. And for her, she has to then relay that to the parent. We were getting really on inside baseball on this. So I'm going to try and back up a little bit. But yeah, I think it, it is difficult to to say, you know, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. And here's why we're not going to provide some of those services. I mean, we've had plenty. I know a nine vision therapy. And so why had to sit down with our OT and we had to write out procedures because she was con- she would be working with the, uh, the vision therapist. And I mean, nine times out of 10, those kids probably need some form because of the screen time, because of all these other factors. But did it impact them in that educational day is what I kept living and dying on. You know, did a kid with, with a specific learning disability in math or reading, how would that vision therapy benefit them in those areas, you know, academically in their day? How would that improve and meet their, their goals? And so I, I, I do like the idea of Iowa, uh, or Iowa Sorry, not having these categories. That That's something yeah. that's amazing. And I, I I think that's in the future for IDEA. I don't know when they'll rewrite it. I think it'll be a hot mess. I mean, they'll have to almost chunk it out section by section and slowly go year by year because they can't rewrite the whole sucker because it'll be a monster. Um,
2: God help us. God. Help, I mean, there are areas <laughs> that need to be rewritten, but God help yeah. us. I don't know. Yes. Um, the to connecting sort of drawing a, a box around this idea of connecting the disability category to the services. And Hunter, I think I even used this analogy with you when we were talking about it um, last year, think of special ed land as a giant conference room, right? You're standing in the conference room and the 13 doorways are the different categories that get a kid into that conference room. And I don't care if the kid came through the autism spectrum disorder door or the specific learning disability door, or the other health-impaired door. Once the child comes through the door into special ed land, then we should serve the child with whatever specially designed instruction he or she needs to receive FAPE. So the parents sometimes get really hung up on their kid being identified in one category or another, or I'll have um, administrators say, well, she doesn't need that because she's just SLD. I don't really care what door the kid came through to get into special ed land. And I don't think parents should get hung up on it either. The question is once we're in special ed land is the child receiving fate. So the, the categories, they're the doorway, but they don't, they're not worth fighting over nine times out of 10.
1: Or the IEP that comes from somewhere else that has six primary disabilities. That's always nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well,
0: yeah, and I, that's when when you and I had that conversation, it really shifted my perception and understanding to some degree on that initial kind of walking into that conference. And because we did have kids that were receiving speech, but they were also getting some uh, um, uh, assistance in reading and writing and math, et cetera, or reading, actually, more or less, because of the connection. And I was like, all right, let's, you know, they their speech, kids. Why you know, why are we doing this? And my SLP would go, here's the concern. Here's what I have. I would look at the sped teacher and she'd go, yes, no, otherwise. And then Karen's Karen really connected that for me because there's times I can be very literal, like 13 categories. You're getting this. Here's your happy meal that you ordered. Here's the chicken nuggets. Here's the french fries. Here's <laughs> the, the toy you get with that. That's all you're getting. When in reality, it's like you said, you, you get your ticket, you go through it, you, you're in that. You have IDA services. Give the child what they need in that sense. And that's that is a difficult pill to swallow for anybody as literal as I am at times. But I think once they have that idea, it, it really does help. You know and it does stop some of that fighting at times because once again when i was in charge of my budget i would have to go to my you know my superintendent or you know whoever it was the person above me going here's why i'm spending that money here's what we're looking at it's a speech kid why are we doing that here's why and when you explain it in that manner it really helps out and it's not about the money but there has to be some explanation some discussion about the idea of here's what we're doing here's why we're doing it. there's there's yep. no issues there but yeah perfect so we we have our categories. We've taken sixty days. We've evaluated this child. We've identified the disability. Do you have, to have the IEP ready right then and there?
2: No. Um, what do I, assuming we have enough time, I'm more. I'm you know for lots of times schools are bumping up against timelines. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, and I'm not so sure that we. It is always a good thing to have the IEP drafted right then and there, especially if we've had a sort of a difficult meeting, a meeting where we had to have a fierce conversation about the child's abilities and disabilities. I think probably mom and dad need a break and we should come back and have the IEP team meeting at a separate time. Um, but I'm, as a practical matter, I and you guys tell me, I, what I see most of the time is that this, the school wants to roll right into an IEP meeting if the child is identified.
1: Yes, I would 100% agree with that. They want to get the services started as soon as possible. So <laughs> we always do it that way.
0: Yes. And I think there's ways to go about it in those contentious meetings. There's conversations where we've had where here's the IEP. Would you like to wait or do you want to have that discussion now? You know, do you want to start services now or do you want to? And if parents wait, here's the drafted IEP based on the evaluation we have. Review it. Let's come back and let's have a discussion. You know, and it's my understanding that we have 60 days to do the timeline. And then from that evaluation, that determination, that starts a 30 day timeline. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. Overall, you're looking at roughly ninety total days of, of total services to, and to, uh, from start to finish, and I think that does put some things into perspective if you're a new special education teacher, a new special education director and you've come from the practice similar to me where you have the eligibility, you have the meeting, you have the IEP, you have to do those things, you can flex you, you can stretch those out a little bit with those timelines you know th- those are the things for me the biggest the biggest uh, uh, point of stress is that sixty day timeline and once mm-hmm. again, depending mm-hmm. on your state, depending on your state chapter. It's going to vary in Wyoming it's sixty Monday through Sunday. Uh, some of them I, and I don't know about South Dakota, I believe South Dakota is the same way, correct?
2: Well, remember, um, the federals the federal regulations say uh, forty five school days.: Yes. Some states have 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 interpreted that to mean sixty calendar days, mm-hmm. but you have to count both because you cannot be you cannot exactly. take longer than what the federal law requires. Uh, and then some states have shorter timelines, although um, I, I think that most of those states have, just as a matter of practicality, had to stretch back out to mm-hmm. the 45-slash-60-day timeline. Yeah.
0: It, and I think staying there is perfect. I've always had 60 in my brain. 45 is a nice way to look at the, the, the what you call it, work days. days? School days, perfect. School
2: days, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, with the 60 calendar days, and we'll get more into the weeds on those days as we look at some of these other issues and we dive into more. Uh, the one thing I want to say as a special education director, when I stepped into my role, my school psych would come in and go, hey, you know, we're at 55 and I don't have parent input. We're at this. In those situations, what I've done is I've, I've really, I've, I've issued a PWM, I'll be frank, and I'll say, you know, my school district values parent input to such a degree that we're willing to go beyond those days. And I issue that PW, and I even call the parents, hey, we're kind of buttoned up against this timeline. I understand you can't meet until day 65. We're going to kind of continue what we're doing, and then we're not going to have that meeting. We're not going to do anything until we can get a very clear picture of this child at home and at school. And I know states, the Department of Education, the federal government may not like it, but part of my job is to ensure that we come together as a team. And if I'm saying, hey, we're coming to day 60, and we're going to meet, and no matter what, parents, I don't care if you have your say, you're not ready, then we're just going to to have the ball rolling. I, I... and, and there's a difference, though. If my school psych says, hey, I've called, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and I get no response, maybe I take the helm and I try to get them a call. Maybe I try and meet them in the, in the commons or I try to get a hold of in those other areas. I'll go knock on their door. i will yep. really try and avoid going to their place of work. But there have been times where I've had to go to their place of work go, hey, uh, here's this piece, here's this envelope. If you have any questions, let me know. I don't want to take up too much of time. I apologize. But it's also, I know the situation. I may know the parent. I'm not going to do that for any Joe Blow because... Once again, that might make the relationship contentious. So it's almost situation by situation. So I might turn to Kelly with your experience. How many times have you, like, how have you been creative in in making sure? Because once again, we don't always set those timelines perfectly. So what do you do in those situations?
1: Well, in my world, you have to be very creative. (laughs) Sometimes I will, if I know where the student is located, if one of my teachers is, in that community, or one of my therapists is sometimes I will even um, call the parent and just say, "Hey, you know, can you meet with so and so? Are you? Do you have any questions? Do you have anything like that?" I've had teachers that have gone to their doors and asked them if they have any any concerns. Um, you know, we've been trying to get a hold of you, and we can't. Would you be willing to have a meeting next week? Um, I have a meeting at I think six thirty at night next week. Just because you know the parents, but uh, we call, we go out to their home. We I don't think I've sent anybody to work yet, but we we do anything that we can just to make sure that that you know. And a lot of times, what I've run into, the parents are very apprehensive, especially if it's their first kid in special ed, you know, so when we do get them to the meeting, you know, we just start with some small talk. How are you doing? You know what? And then we kind of roll into the IEP, kind of break the ice. And usually that will soften them up a little bit instead of just going in there and talking about things that they don't always know what we're talking about. So, I I mean, we just you know, as educators, we do, we go above and beyond to try to make it work. So yeah, going to their homes, calling, emailing, FaceTiming, whatever you got to (laughs) do.
2: I've had clients that uh, parents won't respond to phone calls, but they will respond to Facebook Messenger. Mm -hmm. Now, I I don't want to use social media platforms to disclose a bunch of confidential student information, but um, but like you're supposed to use a variety of creative methods to try to, to coax the parent into participating. Um, and then in the end, I, I advise clients if we like have a parent scale that we've been trying to get them to fill out and they just won't fill it out, eventually we're going to have to roll forward without yes. that data. And I guess I get my perspective is more legal than practical, mm-hmm. um, that on day 59, we're supposed to meet and if the parents yep. haven't gotten us the information, then we schedule a meeting on day 60 and we have to go without that data. I, mm-hmm. I don't love it, but we've, we've done it.
0: And when I look at the inside baseball of it, I'm not saying push it to 70, push it to 80, push it to day hundred. I'm more or less looking at like, all right, we're hitting 60. If we, if we need a few days, like let's, let's figure this out. Let's try to get some form of contact and let's move forward by no means, because that opens a whole separate can of worms. And my, I would imagine because my little brain spirals from time to time, we go past day 60. We try and get the parent involvement. It turns out the kids needed that services. They need those services. we got to meet. We've got to do the eligibility. We're having all these other issues. And by holding up that one little stick, we're really going to run into some further issues down the road. Um, I had a thought here I want to make sure I go back to. When we look at the uh, uh, meeting itself, our required team members are going to be the general education teacher, if applicable. A special education teacher, a school district representative, and an individual who can re- interpret the results, and the parent and child. Child-wise, like it just depends, you know, age, et cetera. You know, I, I like to have the children involved, you know, as soon as they can be. But at the same time, I don't want a kindergartner are always sitting there because they're going to be kind of confused. Or if it is a sensitive one where we're discussing some be- big behaviors and some sensitive issues, and we might get in the weeds, I'll probably bring the kid in after those conversations, unless my therapist or someone else advises other ones. Um, and so if I, if I may ask, how creative can you get when you look at team members? Because when I look at this and I look at my degree or I look at any, any other administrator, any principal in the state of Wyoming can be a special education teacher. And they're more likely than a teacher in general. The idea is you want the input from that, that person. So in essence, let's say you have a student, um, and you're in a smaller district and maybe you are the director and you're also a special education teacher of that kid. You can serve those two roles, Correct.
2: It has to be an individual who is or could be the special ed teacher of that student. Excellent. So the, the example you use Hunter is unusual in that it would be the principal who's also the special ed teacher. Um, but I don't want somebody that holds a special ed credential and an administrative credential. And who's also a speech path to say, Oh, I can be all the, t- I can, I can sit in three spots. Um, uh, So I think as we move forward, when you're talking about the different categories, you need to make sure that you have somebody who's actually going to be serving the kid to to sit in on that meeting.
0: And let's say we're having this meeting at Friday at three o'clock and one of our uh, teachers has an appointment or even our speech path. Can they miss the IEP meeting?
2: Uh, No. I mean, (laughs) if it's a required member of the team, it's a required member of the team. Now, there are lots of ways that schools can work To be creative, Um, but if if we're talking about a speech kid and we have one speech pathologist and she can't make the meeting, then we're going to. I think I think in that case we're much better served to reschedule.
0: And there are ways, especially in today's world, where we can do phone calls, virtual. There's other ways for that individual to participate. You
2: bet. The regulations require this parent to be there in person unless the parent has opted to participate in a different way. But any other member of the team can participate telephonically or zoom or however you want to set it up excellent. or everybody
1: can
0: yeah <laughs> for those of the virtual environment <laughs> <laughs> um excellent so i think we've kind of nailed down most of what we want to talk about we've kind of gone over our normal 30 we're hitting at 43 as as we speak um do we have any additions or any anything else when we look at this initial evaluation to the start of the iep
2: I I just want to emphasize both to providers and to parents. These categories matter in terms of filling out paperwork to get reimbursement from the federal government, but I don't want especially young special educators to get too fired up or or worried about naming somebody in the wrong category. I've actually litigated multiple cases where the school district openly admitted, oh, yeah, we miscategorized this kid. It doesn't matter as long as you provide the student with faith. Mm -hmm. So, the 13 categories shouldn't be something that you spend. I mean, I know it's something that they love to test over when you're getting your special ed degree, but it's it doesn't yes. really matter legally as much as you think it does
0: yeah, that's a, that's a very big point there and, and I, that, that was something that was newer to me because once again, as I got my undergrad, it was 13 yeah. categories they got to qualify, make sure they make sure they hit these marks, make sure you're doing this, make sure and so the the, the shift has changed. I think that's really important to note. Anything on the virtual side or from you Kelly? That we may have missed?
1: No, I don't think so. I think you hit it all. It, my my world's just a little bit different than being there in the brick mm-hmm. setting.
0: <laughs> Excellent. So, but it's
1: very interesting. And I think <laughs> that the virtual environments are only going to continue to grow. I mean, yes. I, I see that. And I, I think the one that we have in Wyoming is a very, very good well-run virtual school that I hope other states can model theirs yes. after.
0: I would a hundred percent agree. Um, as we kind of close things out, I want to make sure everybody knows you can always email any questions or any topics you may want to be brought up at, at no idea at gmail.com. I'll put that in the description as well because it kind of gets confusing. <laughs> um, and then we had an internal conversation. We're looking at probably doing two episodes a month. Um, we do have a list of topics we want to bring up and want to address. Um, so, yeah, look forward to that. And it'll kind of be published on our Twitter, all social media. Uh, heads up, I'm still working on the iTunes uh, podcast piece. It's the only spot we're not on. We are on Spotify, App, um, Amazon, Google, just about all the major platforms, and even some of the smaller ones like iHeartRadio and stuff like that. So, excellent.
2: Awesome. Thank sure. you. Thank you. You guys have a great day. Bye, everybody.